Welcome everybody. Today we are back with another episode. I know we've been gone for a minute, um, but we are back and we're here with a special edition of Tariq Podcast and we're here welcoming a special guest, uh, Dr. Haile Raribo. He is an esteemed professor and historian on a lot of different subjects, specifically on Ethiopian history. And we're here to ask him a lot of uh, questions, uh, some questions on Ethiopian history uh, for our viewers. Um, first of all, Professor Ladable, thank you so much for being here. We're really great. You, we're really grateful for um, to have you here with us. Um, so thank you for being with us here today. Thank you for inviting me. It is uh, quite uh, encouraging to have such young people interested in Ethiopian history. I'm very, very grateful to for being invited. Thank you very much. Of course, of course, it's our. It's we're really grateful. First, I, I can't even explain. Um, so, first of all, um, can you just explain to us, like, who who are you? Who is Doctor? Who is Professor Ladderbo? Um, and some of what can you uh, introduce yourself to us and some of the work that you have done um, here. Oh, there is, there is very little to tell about myself. I come from very humble origin. I was born in South, what is now today, the Southern nations and nationalities, people's pro, what you call regional, regional state, uh, which is uh, where is found Kambata. And I was uh, born in Kambata. Uh, uh, I don't know my birth date, unfortunately. Uh, because in those days <laughs> there were no any recording or registrations, and uh, so I there were no schools, there is no clinics, there is no were no there were no hospitals. The first time I saw a car was I think uh, uh, when I was almost uh, eight years old or something like that. When I saw the car, I have to escape because it was it Italia Leoncina very old with a lot of smoke whenever you touch the gas so i have to escape because i thought he's going to catch me and burn me <laughs> and my uncle has to run because i have to go to addis Ababa. but i was almost missing the bus because of that so that is uh, just to describe where i come from so after that i was born uh, immediately after uh, I think I may be five or six years old. I lost all my parents and my sister. Then uh, whatever is left after that, it is a life of adventure, zigzag, travel, hardship. And uh, practically it is uh, a struggle. Life was a struggle, but uh, fortunately enough, uh, I was able to go to uh, what do you call uh, Italy, to get my BA and MA in philosophy and divinity, then to London to do uh, MPhil, which is almost in this country's PhD level, then PhD in African history. So it is very tortuous life. Uh, it is hard to describe it. And after that, after I finished, I uh, it was in my days, it was very difficult to find a job in England. England was fundamentally racist society. 
And so I have to look for, uh, I couldn't go back to Ethiopia because it was under the military rule. And so what I have been advised is your uh, hope is in the United States. So I applied to the United States. I competed with a substantial number of people and they go, I got my first job in history teaching. Then uh, at the moment I'm uh, working at Morehouse uh, uh, College where I'm teaching world history and African history as well as uh, American history. So in terms of publications, I have published extensively. My first book is uh, by one of the rare publishers of rare academic work, uh, Clarendon Press of Oxford University Press and won that year's uh, the best uh, book in, uh, uh, in its field. And also it is recommended as uh, a book to be consulted for whoever wants to do archival work. After that, of course, I have written in church history in Ethiopian Orthodox Church, a couple of articles, then a couple of other articles in Italian colonialism. And a lot of uh, recently, I realized that the Ethiopians really, uh, I have to dedicate myself to educate Ethiopian public. So I started to use uh, social media and I write from time to time on a very critical issues such as uh, Ethiopian history, personalities and uh, other relevant matters. So that is, I, that is, I think, uh, what you wanted to know about me. Is there anything uh, specific? I'm more than happy to explain. No, you know, you, you explained it quite, quite well. You know, we're, um, we're really grateful to have um, someone like you, someone in our community that can really talk about our history like that to our community, um, especially in an area where um, it's often been subverted for a lot of different reasons and a lot of the youth don't have a much, uh, neither interest um, or if they do, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not in accordance to the way that the values that we were raised up in. So thank you for that. Um, yeah, for sure. So, so our next question is, can you, you, you explained that you were from Kambata and um, ca can you explain a little bit about the origins of the Kambata people? Who are the Kambata people and what their significance uh, is to Ethiopian history and to Ethiopia as a whole? Uh, today, Ethiopia is divided in uh, ethnic groups. Unfortunately, that is a sad situation we find ourselves. And uh, the people are uh, competing. My ethnic group is more important, larger, greater. Uh, it played historical significance in Ethiopian history or whatever or whatever. So practically, it is uh, very sad, but the situation is Kambata actually in Ethiopian history played very significant role. It appears in for the first time in Ethiopian history under uh, as a Yusak uh, in uh, 1400, and uh, for the first time it is mentioned alongside Somalia and other uh, Ethiopian provinces as a the most important provinces that uh, uh, raises uh, horses and combatants are uh, uh, 
uniquely specialized in horse raising. And uh, after that, it played a very major role in Ethiopian history. And the most significant was that uh, uh, when uh, uh, in Ethiopian history, they call him invader or whatever it is. But for me, it is uh, simply a rival competitor for power, like Emperor Johannes or Emperor uh, Theodros. When Gran invaded uh, or attacked in the central government and they defeated uh, Libna Dingil, Ethiopia was practically in a chaos. So we are going, you can see, you can show that a picture in number, uh, I'm sorry, I should have prepared that. Uh, you can see that in number. Uh, which page? You can show the, the Solomon Mangist. You can see Solomon Mangist. This one, right? The Solomon, yeah, that one. Mm -hmm. So you can see that, uh, says meeting is being recorded. Uh, so that is, we can see that the, the Ethiopia of the Aksumites, Aksumites were even larger than that because it goes beyond the Red Sea, it conquered most of Saudi Arabia, Yemen, and, uh, and also according to the Adulis throne, it is known as Adulis throne simply because it, is, uh, it has got a shape of throne. It is a statue, a monument where the king describes his greatest conquest. It goes to the, the, to the uh, boundaries of Egypt, so practically in the, in the northern side. So this is uh, the Solomon, what you call the Aksumite Empire. Many people say, no, this is uh, completely does not reflect the, what you call the, the real situation, but that is what is described in the documentation. The next one, if you can go to the next one. No, I don't see the next one. Yeah, it is it. This is Muhammad uh, Grany or Ahmed ibn Ibrahim uh, al-Ghazi. So practically this is what he did. He started from the east. So he conquered most of Ethiopia. And as a result of that, there was some sort of chaos. But after Mohammed was defeated, uh, his successor again invaded uh, attempted to conquer the central, to capture the central government power. And it was a combatant general who was sent to attack Karar. And he destroyed the city of Harar and killed the ruler of uh, Harar. So practically, what we say is in terms of competition for power and ascendancy, Kambata played a major role. Uh, that general's name was Ras uh, Amelmaz. Uh, so, and also Kambata is unlike uh, other Ethiopian societies, is highly stratified society. Uh, there are um, three groups, the nobles or the ruling class, which whose uh, uh, position was strengthened by the Ras Amelman who came from Gondar, that is what they say. And these ruling class are known as Oyata. And then the second, the nobleman who went with this ruling class known as Gulba, who come from Shawa. And uh, then in the the commanders, the general commanders, now known as Kontoma, 
who come from a different part of southern Ethiopia, largely Sidama, Deresa, and other part. Then finally, there are the craftsmen, normally the tanners, the potters, the blacksmiths. So then in the bottom of them, there are slaves. Kambata society doesn't have a lot of slaves, so practically it is, they are not well known and enslaving uh, other people. So it's very rare to find in Kambata slaves. So it is a highly stratified society and a highly developed sense of uh, what you call a nationalism as well as a sense of identity. But it is, you can call Kambata as a melting pot, a little Ethiopia because people come from different parts of the world, from the different part of Ethiopia. They are Gojamis, Shawans, Sadamas, Walaitas, Tigrians. There are about 100, at least 120 subclans, clans and subclans. And uh, so practically they reflect, uh, they reflect the Ethiopia they mirror the, the real Ethiopia. So even though the Kambata language is common to all, all those who escaped persecution, who wanted some sort of uh, uh, prominence in the society, those who are oriented or what do you call ambitious people, all of them really took refuge in Kambata. So it is very, very, uh, mixed up uh, society and uh, the legal system is highly developed actually in 1970s many researchers were saying instead of looking for European legal system why we don't study the Kambata system and apply it to the rest of Ethiopia and uh, so uh, in a, there are Oromos uh, and, and also there are uh, there is no an ethnic group in Ethiopia which is not in Kambata, but the general name given to that is Kambata because there is this legendary <clears throat> narrative which says uh, in a 1600, between 1600 and 1500, the Kambata society uh, established itself uh, some sort of uh, hierarchical structure, what you call confederacy. The confederacy is uh, the seven group of ethnic groups who, or really must be ethnic groups uh, structured themselves according to, uh, according to their uh, abilities, their uh, professions, their, uh, what you got based on the achievements. So these seven groups are really the foundation of Kambata society. It is now that agreement was everyone accepted the position that was given uh, because they were agreed on some sort of competition. Then those seven really are the foundation of Kambata. Everyone who joins was given land uh, by this seven group or the leader of the seven group and has been what you call allocated and become part of the Kambata society. So it is a very de highly developed uh, uh, consciousness as well as organization. So this is uh, Kambata. And uh, uh, for example, those who come from Oromo area are now in Gabara. Gabara practically means those Kambata 
people who have been um, assimilated by the Oromos in Arusi region, because until 1970s, between 75 and 80% of the Arusi population is Kambata and Adia, a substantial number also of Grage. So those are Gavara called. There are Oyata who come from the uh, northern regions. Then there are a lot, a lot of them, all of them keeping the areas from where they came in. For example, there is Omoshogara. Omoshogara means those who came crossing the Omo River. So that is how the combatant society is. So uh, as I said, uh, when they were cut off because of the uh, Oromo migration, they were cut off from the central government. And uh, until then, they were Christians because there are a lot of relics and, uh, and uh, institutions they kept. And but eventually, they Christianity was lost, but they have never became adopted another religion ex beyond the syncretization of the surrounding areas, religion plus Christianity. And that Christianity, and they developed their own system of government, monarchy. And this monarchy in 1800 was becoming very powerful in a, when Menelik's uh, reunified the country practically the golden age of Kambata. Many say that the horse in Menelik's uh, statue in Addis Ababa, you can see that Menelik was riding, was really the horse of the Kambata king, Dilbeto, uh, because as I say, the Kambatans are well known in horse raising. So Oromos also are claiming that must be Romo horse. But uh, before that, I think there is some sort of record that it was really Dilbeto's horse. Dilbeto was, uh, uh, was killed during uh, the battle, in the, in the battle. And as a result of that, uh, the Kambata came under the administration of the central government. And re-Christianization took place, but unfortunately, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church was not very effective. As a result of those Protestants and the Catholics uh, took over, and the majority of the population is either Protestant or Catholic, and very few Ethiopian Orthodox, because Ethiopian Orthodox, even though the population is Orthodox originally, did not play a major role. I think that gives you some picture of Kambata. So as I said, a melting pot of Ethiopian society. For example, you can show that picture of Emperor Ailes Lassie. Uh, next one, I think. Yeah, before we get into it, we wanted to progress more. We can, we can move forward um, more effectively um, and efficiently. Um, can you talk a bit about, you, you brought up um, some of the other ethnic groups and the other kingdoms in Ethiopia alongside the Kambata. Can you talk a little bit about them um, and how they've been integrated into the society, Ethiopian society or the empire um, and with the North even, like what their connections are with the North, such as the Hadia, um, the Kafa and the other groups you mentioned. Yeah, uh, as you can see, uh, if you if you can go back to the map, the, uh, the first map where it says Solomonic, uh, the Solomonic Empire, this map, uh, a little bit, the previous one, the previous one. No, not the previous one, not that, this one. 
if you can see that this is Ethiopian, uh, what we call, some people call it empire, but uh, <laughs> I, I call it Ethiopian state. Empire has got different meaning. Uh, as you can see, it goes, it includes Somalia, as goes as far as Azania. Azania is the present day Kenya. So what uh, Granje did is uh, practically it wanted it, actually Grand Grand created even larger Ethiopian political entity because it pushed into Sudan areas beyond you can see that uh, the color changes it is no longer um, what you call red or yellow um, it, uh, red and so when this uh, was um, uh, disintegrated uh, Ethiopian central government became weakened because it was immediately followed by the Oromos. The, even though Ethiopian government tried to recover those territories lost, it was, uh, for example, you can show the, the, the next picture, which was, I think, picture, uh, uh, I don't know where it is. I don't see it. The, if you go, so you can see this picture is Ibrahim, what they call Grand. So Grand conquered most of the territory. There was massive population movement. Many Christians became Muslims. And later on, of course, many Muslims are going to be Christians. Then Grand's invasion was followed by Oromo migration. Then if you go to the next one, to the next picture, this one. So practically, this is the greatest Ethiopian population migration, uh, which followed the Grand and Oromo migration. So the Oromos themselves are involved in this great migration. We can see uh, Somalis are going to migrate. Who was in the north goes to the south. Who was in the south go to the north. So practically, Ethiopia has been the country of massive migration. And uh, uh, I call it a, really, it is a creation of different societies, one moving to the north, one the other moving to the south. For example, Aksumites moved from the north to the south. Then the Agos moved from the, what do you call, uh, the center to the south and the north. Then the Grand moved from the east. The Solomonite dynasty, I'm sorry, moved from the west. Uh, from Central West, and then the Somalis moved from the East, then the Oromos moved from the South. So practically it is a movement of population, which is going to steer the Ethiopian society. So in one word, the Ethiopian society, so what the Emperor Menelik did is what has been uh, the decentralized and after the uh, after the Oromo migration and the uh, Grand uprising, uh, what you call the Grand conquest or invasion, they call it the word invasion. What emperors Menelik, Theodros, Johannes, and uh, the Afar and the Gojamis did is really to bring back that unity which was lost during those 200 years. So there wasn't any new territory conquered. What actually happened is most of substantial amount of the territory was lost. As you can see, the Somalia 
is no longer with Ethiopia. And substantial part of Sudan is no longer with Ethiopia. Eritrea was no longer with Eritrea. So the Ethiopian migration was steered out of, uh, as a result of the external conquest. Whenever a foreign invader came, Ethiopians unified and created unity and came together. Oh, internal migration. So practically that is what happens. There wasn't really any conquest. This, uh, uh, what these uh, intellectuals of, uh, uh, what they call is, um, uh, the, the, uh, out of this 18th and 1960s student movement as Amara conquest, uh, as you can see the Amara conquest, if you can show the, picture of Emperor Alessandro, what makes him Amara? You can see that from his mother's side, from his father's side. How many ethnic groups were involved there? There are a lot of ethnic groups. Emperor Alessandro is hardly Amara, he is hardly Christian, because on the mother's side, he comes from Muslims, uh, and uh, it's from, uh, so his grandmother, grandmother, practically she is Silte, Okay, then, then she's married Yeju Muslim, which is Oromos and half Oromos. Yejus are really a melting, a melting pot of Ethiopia like Kambata itself. So then uh, he, she was married to Warelu Muslim. Then she was married uh, to uh, Ras Mekonin. Ras Mekonin on, on the other hand is half Oromo half, uh, what do you call, um, uh, shower, shower practical means a melting pot, another melting pot. So how do you define that Emperor Haile Selassie? Was he Christian? Of course he's Christian because the central government's belief system is the core value of the central government is Christianity, but that doesn't mean it is, it is uh, persecuting as a religion. Ethiopia is really a big, uh, uh, what do you call uh, a big uh, bow bow under which all these religions, ethnic groups, languages come together. So even though the bow bow has got its own kind of branches and uh, uh, what do you call roots. So that is what Ethiopian society is. That is what Menelik did. And uh, many people say that the unification happened with Menelik. That is completely wrong, simply because the process started very, very long time ago. Um, fortunately, I don't see the... Uh, if you see pay, picture seven, first reunification attempt. Here you are. Yeah, that, no, that one, the first one. This one, no. First reunion, can you see that? After, no, that picture, can you keep that picture? Which picture? I'm sorry, the map, the first map. First reunification attempt. That one. This one? Oh, yeah, that one. You can see that Serza Dingen tried to reconstitute Ethiopian, uh, the pre, what do you call the pre Grand Ethiopia. Unfortunately, we couldn't because the government, the central government, so weak, and 
And immediately after that, there was civil war within the monarchy because of competition for power between the nobility. They didn't want monarchy. They wanted to create some sort of uh, uh, regional uh, uh, feudal system. As a result of that, with Romo support, Susinius emerged as powerful. But his son created Gondar, and Gondar wasn't an appropriate place to move uh, as in the past, because in the past, this is huge area. Imagine Ethiopia of that time was almost six times of uh, England or uh, five times of Italy. So in order to administer that size of the government, to have a city in the far west was really uh, not ideal because the previous rulers have got this roving town. A roving town means the king moves with his army from one place to another, normally in the south, located in the south. And as a result of that, whenever there is some sort of uprising, he moved from south to west, from east to north. So, but with Gondar, the establishment of Gondar, this was not possible because they created a completely different kind of city-based administration. But so Sersa Dingila at least tried, and, but it was not sustained by the following rulers. Then what happened is, if you go to the next one, uh, the picture is, um, I think that is, this picture, unification, happened in three stages. First is Teodros who wanted to bring back the uh, the northern provinces, and this was stimulated not because Teodros wanted to unify, simply because there was an external attack. The Turks, the Turks, the Egyptian, and the British were attacking. So practically, Teodros realized in order to keep the glory of Ethiopia, the past Ethiopia, the country has to be unified. Then Theodros was not successful simply because the European, uh, he wanted from the Europeans armaments, weapons and technology, but the Europeans were sending missionaries. So he said, uh, what he said is, uh, uh, when Europeans want to occupy one's country, first they send missionaries, then they followed up with the ambassadors in order to protect their missionaries. Then they, pro they, uh, they follow with the uh, uh, army in order to protect their consuls. I am not the, uh, the Raj of India, I would like to face your missionaries first. So based on that approach, what he did, he's imprisoned the missionaries. And as a result of that, he was attacked by the British. So the idea of creating a unified central, centrally governed Ethiopia was not dead because it was followed by success, successors of Johannes. I'm sorry, Theodros, which was Johannes on one hand, Teklahimanot on the other, then the two of them unified. Uh, Johannes practically saved the country from the external enemies, largely the Egyptians and the Turks, and Teklahimanot uh, also from the Sudanese. And um, finally, Menelik, 
since the Europeans were attacking and conquering the southern part of Africa before the southern part of Ethiopia, he wanted to stop that these countries taking part of Ethiopia. Practically, he said when he wrote the letter to the British and to the European powers, look, you come from overseas and are taking a country that does not belong to you. And he gave the territory of the ancient Ethiopia. So Johannes and Theodros, um, sorry, Johannes and Menelik agree on one thing. The countries which they unified as Ethiopia is simply uh, losing substantial part to the European power. So practically that unity was completed by Menelik, but he didn't conquer new territories. He simply sacrificed substantial part of territory in order to uh, protect Ethiopia and provide a buffer zone to the peaceful coexistence of Ethiopians. So the idea that uh, mainly conquers the southern regions, uh, that is really 18, uh, a 1960s student movement creation. And uh, because they say that uh, Ethiopia is a recent inter invention, uh, it is a colonial empire masquerading as a nation state, but it is dominated by one ethnic group known as Amara, other ethnicities are under oppression. This is really very, very, what do you call a pure, very poor analysis because uh, as you can see, no ethnic group, uh, if you can go to the next picture, let me see, I think it is in the next one. Now, Theodros brought core state, the core state is Grago, German, Johannes and Rasalula, Brought would defended Ethiopia from the external enemies like the Egyptians, the Sudanese, and the Italians. Then Tekel Haimanot and Ras uh, Dereso uh, from the Sudanese, Menelik and Ras Govena from the British and the French. As you can see, Johannes is not Amara, Ras Alula is not Amara. Maybe Amara, if you call Gojamis Amara, because Gojami speak Amharic now, but they are Ago, so we shouldn't forget that. Ras Dereso is definitely an Ago man. Uh, Menelik, you can call him Amara because he speaks Amharic, but uh, in his, uh, as we can see, his mother is not Amara, definitely. And Ras Govena, everybody knows that he is not Amara. Menelik and Ras Mekonin, who pacifies the southern part of <coughs> eastern part of the country, is not uh, definitely Amara. So he's a combination of many ethnic groups. So if you can see the next one, let me see. I think uh, you can see that external enemies attacking. So that, that is why the unification happened. You can see those uh, uh, lines from. Uh, a different part of the the, the, uh, the borders trying to attack Ethiopia. So Ethiopia is simply responding to those attacks. And uh, so there wasn't, what I wanted to say is, is really there wasn't any kind of this conquest. Simply uh, it is rescuing Ethiopia, saving Ethiopia from external threats and bringing the unity that existed years before uh, in Ethiopian history.
I think that answers your question, but uh, through other uh, uh, points, uh, I think when we come back, I'll go through other uh, points too, so. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. That's, that was very informative. Thank you so much for that. Um, we definitely appreciate that. Um, and I've definitely learned a couple of things for me myself. Um, so my next question is what, how can you uh, describe, how do you, how would you describe the relationship with the past Ethiopian emperors, the central Ethiopian or like the Christian emperors and the rulers of the other kingdoms of the other people? How would you describe their relationship and the relationship to the state? Um, did they get along oftentimes? Did they often rebel? Like how, how, how did that, how, how was the relationship basically? Um, how did it differentiate? The central government vis-a-vis -vis the regional states or ethnic groups, that is what you are asking me? Like, for example, the, the rulers of Kambata and the rulers of Inaria, the rulers of Kafa. What was the relationship, the rulers with the emperors or the central Ethiopian state? What was the relationship like? Most of these rulers, as you can see, they, they trace the ancestry from the central Ethiopian government. For example, Kambata's ruling class, they, they claim that they come from Gonda. The same with uh, Walaitas, the same with uh, all these uh, Kafas. Most of them claim that their ancestors come from the Gonda or from the north. Of course, this is uh, maybe some sort of myth mystical or mythical view. Uh, but at least it is very, very important to notice this is a belief uh, culture which they share sense of identity that they are not some sort of a strange part of Ethiopia, but at least the ruling class, which is the most important prominent class, claims that their power derived ultimately from the ancestors who come from the northern part of Ethiopia. The secondly is really the Ethiopian system of government. Uh, the system that Ethiopia followed is also laid down by the Aksumite uh, kingdom, and which means practically you incorporate people and bring them together so that they can live in peace and prosperity, but you do not interfere in their internal administration. You, of course, are going to appoint a general ruler who is going to run the country, who is going to uh, inspect or supervise the administration in behalf of the, the central administration. The central administration does not interfere in the local affairs as long as the king or what they call the Balabat ruled the country efficiently and uh, honestly, fair with fairness. It interfer interferes only if there is injustice and unfairness. That is how the Ethiopian government ran the countries for a very, very long time since the Aksumite Empire. So this is the, the blueprint that Aksumite left behind. That was followed by Theodros, by Johannes, by, uh, for example, many people emphasize Johannes ruled as a federation. No, that was the type of Ethiopian administration. Every locality kept their autonomy. The government never interfered, even uh, Johannes himself, even though he was uh, a Tigrian, 
he realized that he's Ethiopian ruler. As an Ethiopian ruler, he never, he did not, when he spoke as a king, he didn't speak as in Tigrinya, he spoke in Amharic. Because Amharic since 1700 is considered to be the lingua franca of Ethiopians. Uh, as many people claim now, the Amharic is come from Amara, no. Because Amara itself is really, what it meant is a melting pot of uh, the Ethiopian society because Amharic is really, it is a pidgin, a pidgin or Creole language of Ethiopian society who come from different parts of the country and communicate. So he spoke in Amharic because he was speaking to the rest of Ethiopia. And uh, the same with Ago. Ago, of course, their language, I'm sorry, Zagwe. Zagwe were definitely Ago people, Ago rulers, but they didn't use Ago as official language, even though that was their native language. They spoke in Amharic and they made sure Amharic is the Lisan and Negus, the, the language of the royalty or the administration. And of course, um, when the central government broke down and Amharic, of course, became the, according to the 17th century German writer, the language, if you want to travel throughout Ethiopia, there are so many languages you cannot communicate with anybody because they don't go beyond, they don't go beyond the river. But if you speak Amharic, you can communicate in every corner of Ethiopia. So practically, uh, I, where, what I say Johannes did is re-established Amharic as a national language. It wasn't Minilik. Many people say it is Minilik. <laughs> Minilik simply accepted what uh, Johannes introduced and also the local community, for example, the Oromos around uh, the Oromo Balabas, who were, for example, in uh, Western, um, uh, Western Ethiopia, like Elbavor, Walega, and uh, other parts, uh, they communicated in Amharic simply because that was the only written African language or Ethiopian language, even though or what you call Amharic wasn't the, uh, what you call the language of the vast majority of their population. So there was an, uh, this was really reinforced by economic integration and unity because the trade from the south went through the center to through Gojam, through Begamede, went to the Red Sea, or from the Red Sea went to the Sudan. So it has to pass through all this process. So it's one political and economic unit, the country. And then the idea of the mythical belief that most of the rulers come from the center, uh, sustained that unity. And of course, that unity was broken from time to time, but it was re-established as a result of that of, uh, as I said, external threat or the need to be unified for some internal kind of uh, rehabilitation. So that is what it was. There wasn't, um, as I said, really the, uh, it is a, it was conquest, migration, intermarriage, interculturation. So that is what is a characteristic of Ethiopian society. So uh, even for example, Grand, when he conquered most of Ethiopia, 
he never had the ambition of creating a different state. He called himself the king, uh, what do you call, uh, the Sultanate of Ethiopia. That means the kingdom of Ethiopia. He wasn't, in, he, he never intended to create a, a Hararite or Adal, Adal kingdom. Simply he kept the Ethiopian empire as it is, simply because he himself, I'm sure, believed that he was Ethiopian because substantial number of his soldiers, of course, they spoke Amharic too. Thank you. I, I, I don't, I'm not sure whether I answered your question or not. You definitely did. It was really helpful. Um, and you brought a lot of interesting points. Um, I think, I think this, you know, you mentioned a lot about some of the the responses have been um, in terms of the the context of what is deemed as the the Ethiopian state or colonization when it comes to certain rulers you brought up. Um, so what what would you what would what's your opinion on a lot of politicians sort of downgrading or minimizing? the authentic and the integrated history of the multiple different ethnic groups like the Kambata, like the Hadiyya uh, in Ethiopia and denying them the antiquity and the historical links that they have with the rest of Ethiopia. Um, what, what do you think the reasons are that? What incentives do they have in order, what, what kind of incentives do they have to spread like false history and to make it seem as if they were forced, they were never Ethiopian, uh, Ethiopia was just belonging to two ethnic groups and that the other Ethiopians, other ethnic groups were only forcibly became Ethiopian like 150 years ago. What what, what reasons do you think they have um, to spread these narratives? Uh, first and foremost, Ethiopia have been always dissuaded away from its central focus because of external uh, influences and uh, and that has played a major role uh, recent times the external influences as a university education as you can see the university education if you see your uh, the what do you call uh, the powerpoints towards the end if you do not mind where it says anthropology uh, i don't know what number it is towards the end. Now you can go back where that one for all the challenges in new for So our challenges and all this belief system comes from missionaries, ethnographers, diplomats and foreign agents, radicals. This group, as I said, highlight differences, not communalities, okay? And as a result of that, many people do not look Ethiopian history for what it is. What they see is, oh, your language is Oromo. Your Oromos are, do not really speak Amharic, but they don't notice that Oromos have been an integral part of Ethiopia, not since, 19th century, since the 19th century, but since 17, uh, since the beginning of uh, the, the middle of 16th century. Still, in the process of migration, the Oromos were part of the Ethiopian government because, for example, Emperor Susinius, who really is the founder of Gojam, uh, couldn't come to power if it was not aided by 
the Oromos because his army was largely Oromo army and his wife was from Oromo. So practically those who ruled uh, uh, Gondar for a very long time, it was a dynasty whose ancestor was Oromo and uh, what do you call uh, Falasha, Falasha, I'm sorry, what do you call Beta Israel. And Socinius might have a very tiny portion of what we call uh, Amara or other ethnic groups blood in him because his wife, uh, his mother was from Israel, Beta Israel, and his father, of course, uh, was from the ruling class, and his wife was Oromo, and of course, she had been Christianized, and her grandmother, I'm being told, uh, she must have been Muslim or uh, any other religion. So uh, this is what they do not realize. Ethiopian, by 18 and 19, the Oromos have been completely transformed from the original lifestyle into Ethiopian community, into Ethiopian society, simply because according to, uh, let me give you a very good example. In 1620, one of the greatest uh, advisors and prominent personalities uh, and also intellectual in the government of uh, Socinius was, um, uh, was uh, uh, one, uh, what do you call, uh, I think his name is uh, uh, Tesfas, uh, oh my goodness, uh, he, he was an Oromo man, but he was considered by the Europeans of the time as the greatest intellectual and the greatest uh, uh, personality in the entire continent. And he describes Amharic as our language, Amharic our language. So this is, uh, you know, uh, in um, 15 years after the Oromos we call migrated to Ethiopia. So that integration has happened very, very long time ago. Now these missionaries, ethnographers and diplomats and European travelers who didn't do any serious studies tell us this uh, uh, fabricating stories. What they saw, of course, they have to highlight the differences. That is what the, their job is. Otherwise, you know, they uh, do not have uh, people to convert and I don't even know, according to Asa Johannes, Emperor Johannes, he, what he said is, why are you European come all the way from Europe to Christianize his Christian country, and while and crossing all Egypt, Sudan, Saudi Arabia, who need really Christianity. So this is the people who really brought these new ideas and Ethiopians are, as you can see, there are, they are always open to new ideas. As you can see in Ethiopian um, folk history, Queen Sheba went to visit Solomon, not because she admired his, what do you call beauty or uh, what do you call kindness, but because his wisdom and the Ethiopians became Christians simply because the people who made Ethiopia Christian were refugees who have been enslaved, taken as captives. But since they have got new ideas, new, what do you call, uh, 
ideologies, they got a very prominent position in the royal household. And eventually they preached Christianity and converted to Christians. And as I say, the Muslims came to Ethiopia as the first migration before the Muhammad's migration to Medina, simply because Ethiopians admire new ideas. So this is really part of our history, you know, accept new ideas, you know, the same what happened with these students of 1960s. They saw these new ideas, they didn't examine, but the world was different at that time. The world was divided into nationalities and uh, to Europeans and Africans and colonialism and that and that. So the, Ethiop the Ethiopian students, since they were immature, they were not uh, grown up, uh, what do you call them, um, uh, intellectuals, they don't have Ethiopian sense of Ethiopian history. So they adopted all these funny ideas. They said, you know, the people who speak Amharic are dominant. The, so they highlighted those differences, not similarities, commonalities, shared identities. So this is one of the most important issue. I think I have a couple of quotations, but I cannot tell you which one I have to... Uh, this is not the first time I also, uh, for example, uh, for example, what Johannes say to the missionaries, why do foreign nations come here Christianizing Christians? They make trouble in my country and they are not wanted. Are there no men who are pagans to be converted? We are Christians like yourself, but with different forms. I find Western nations profess a great interest in Egypt. Uh, why do not Europe, you European missionaries convert these Egyptians, your friends, to Christianity? So, so the Ethiopian rulers are well aware uh, that European objectives is uh, completely different from what they claim to be. And actually, we can see today with the United States and the Western world in uh, the situation we are now. And... Uh, so this is, for example, the, you can see that Wube, these are European missionaries for the first time in Ethiopian court. You can see, beware never again to treat the soul of my dominions. You and the English live in a cursed land and you covet our salubrious climate. One of you collects our plants, another our stones. I do not know what you are looking for, but I do not, I do not wish that it is in my country that you find it. So practically this is, you know, Ethiopia is a, a very much a wanted country. Yeah. Of, huh? Yeah. Yeah, if you go to the next one, if you can find it quite interesting. Huh? Yeah. I know the tactics of European powers when they plan to occupy one's country by force, first they send out their missionaries. Afterwards, they send their council in order to protect their missionaries. Then their battalions in order to protect their council. Do not think that I'm the Raj of India. I think I mentioned that before, but it still reinforces that idea. Yeah. What is the intention of the Europeans? If you can go ne next, uh, the, we have seen that one. You can go to the next one. Okay. So this is what uh, we do not know. This is what anthropology is. If you can see ethnology have to contribute necessar necessarily to colonial methods, look at the last one, highlighted section, by leading to more re 
rational, rational exploitation of natural resources. So it is to help colonial powers uh, understand the customs, the beliefs, the usages of the low society of the local population so that they can exploit rationally their natural resources. So our students do not know all these, uh, what do you call it, uh, what is this behind all these uh, professors, lecturers who come to teach us in the, as a university with very respectable title behind them. So this is one of the most important element, of course. Thank you so much. Um, that was I definitely very informative. I definitely learned also on this a lot. Um, I'm, I'm familiar with a lot, some of these sayings, uh, Tedros and Johannes is saying, but I was not aware of what uh, the jazz match would be. Um, I, I was not aware that he also had his own interactions with them, which I find very interesting. Um, I think even to, to cap it off, you know, some of the things that you were describing, I relate to a lot of them where it's, there's these notions of like denying the antiquity and the historicity of, uh, and the significance of other ethnic groups. Like for me, for example, like I'm very well admire my, my history, but you know, people will try to say that we weren't part of Ethiopia. We were forced to be part of Ethiopia or that we don't have any links with that. But um, you know, there's a lot of history of migrations and um, interactions, basically. That's what we have, interactions long-standing um, interactions, communications, moving from place to place, intermarriages, you know, that's something that's a defining factor and a defining um, feature of our history throughout the very many um, different groups in Ethiopia. And I wanted to go back into an earlier map that, um, that was in the slide. Um, even here, for example, um, I've noticed some of the names that you have here, even like Indigaptan, uh, for example, or Wotajira, from what I see in, in here. Um, I'm, I don't see these names anymore. They're not in Ethiopia anymore. And I'm just wondering, like, what, um, or like a lot of them, some of them I do recognize, like some of this, like Silti, Kabena, Alaba, some of these are present. They're not as much known, but they're still present, but other names they're they've basically like disappeared so can you kind of just like in a really really shortly like um briefly can you describe what 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 happened to a lot of these names and um why we don't know about them anymore uh, some of them are still for example siltes is still there Bereituma are still there uh, you know they are of course scattered is uh, so they speak kambata language uh, they are part of the Kambata. Silte are still there. Uh, what is the other one? I can hardly see. In the Gavtan, I, in the Gavtan is a very historical place. I think it's, it is uh, present since the 15th century. Uh, I'm sure it is in Gurage area, uh, somewhere there. And uh, so there are a lot of us Somalis, for example, we know about the Somalis. So, uh, Bushe, they are in, in uh, Bushe, they are in uh, in Sidama area. So the Sidama people, the many people do not know that the word Sidama is given by the Oromos to the to Ethiopian Christians. So the Sidama are are not really ethnic group. It is a description of Ethiopia in Oromo in Oromo language. So, but the people of Sidama are Bushe. 
and other uh, ethnic groups. I think the major two are Bushe and another one, I don't remember its name. So all the, most of this uh, group are Boren are still available, are still existent. So most of them are still, uh, still there. Of course, Kambara, Kabenna, many people do not know uh, that Kabennas uh, are Kambatas or part of the Kambata group. Because Kambata involved actually to uh, today, Kambata is a very tiny place, but in the good old days, it involved as far as Kaffa, as well as far as Somali boundary. So practically, it was a very large area. Thank you for that. Um, and lastly, um, I think for the uh, for my questions, at least the, the, the last question I have personally, um, what can we as Ethiopians of this generation and the next generation, what can we do to better educate ourselves on um, not just the history of like the emperors per se, or like the central Ethiopian government, but what can we do to um, educate ourselves and make ourselves aware about the neglected and the forgotten history of a lot of the other ethnic groups in Ethiopia, considering the fact that we have over 82 different ethnic groups and so many more languages. What can we do to not just um, know about their histories, but also um, make ourselves uh, self-reflect on ourselves about the narratives, the false narratives that goes on about them not being Ethiopian enough. There's a lot of you know notions that other groups were not were forced not just forced to be Ethiopian, but they don't look Ethiopian, or that they have no relationship with the other parts of Ethiopia and that they're just colonized or they, they don't have any sort of links where that's where you've proven that that's not the case and that we all have links towards each other. So what can we do to better educate ourselves, to make ourselves uh, self-conscious and be aware of the fact that there's so much more rich history that we have that is really unknown, not just by us, but a lot of even contemporary Ethiopians too. A lot of older Ethiopians are not aware about this. So what can we do to um, to really educate ourselves about that? What, what would you what would you recommend for for the this generation or even uh, in general right now as the Yaluk Ethiopians? Uh, you are asking me a very difficult question. First and foremost, to develop a critical mind that is the most important. You can have PhDs, you can be teaching for years, but unless you are critical and look and everything for with suspicion. Ethiopians are well known to questioning everything. So that is the most important one. The second one is we learn from our own experience, even today, that uh, Ethiopia, uh, Ethiopians have people with uh, exceptional achievement, but appalling failures. Uh, we are, in terms of land, we have got the bus, the breadbasket of the world, but we are still starving. In terms of uh, country, we got the most fertile land, but uh, we are still st starving. In terms of rivers, water, it is the richest in the world, but many people are dying of uh, uh, drought, uh, drought and uh, what do you call uh, a lack of, uh, uh, of water. You know, it is a contradiction. 
reality is a contradiction. The richest country in the world, but also being the poorest, it is really a reflection also of the rest of Africa. So what I advise the young generation is to be uh, to be aware of their uh, what do you call a rich history. Uh, be aware of their rich history. They played major world, some greater what do you call roles than any society in the world. Uh, we played uh, Ethiopians played a major role to the black people, to the Arabs, to the Europeans. I'm sure many of you remember the what do you call uh, the land of Christopher John when Europeans were practically were lost and couldn't find the sense of direction. Who really rescued them is that imaginary king, Prester John, who ruled Ethiopia. And as a result of that, in the, uh, in the search of the land of Prester John, many of you realize that they ended up not only becoming strong nations, but also discovering the Americas and the Australia. And so that is, it is started because Ethiopia inspired them, you know, to go and look for adventures to find the land of the priesthood. John. So practically they were humiliated by the Ottomans and the Muslims had occupied most of the land. They stopped their movement to the east from where they got the, uh, the spices. So in order to overcome and defeat the Muslim powers, the Ottomans, of course, they have to ally themselves with this powerful king, the priester John, who ruled Ethiopia. So, so practically Ethiopia has been an inspiration, not only for the Christians, but also for the Muslims too. When Muhammad was um, uh, rejected by his own countrymen, and uh, so his salvation came by sending his own very close relatives and followers to Ethiopia. And then of course, those Americans or Europeans who discovered Africa uh, and Europe, uh, I'm sorry, and Americas, uh, enslaved Africans and dragged them through the ocean, you know, who rescued them, the idea of Ethiopia. So, we have to remember this rich history, you know. Ethiopia practically is a land of asylum or refugee, uh, people who live law-abiding and caring, and the people who do not really tolerate injustice. This is what really we are missing. And this, as, as you can see, what is going in our own country, there is no justice. We lost the sense of of our own identity, what makes us Ethiopians, okay? So you cannot imagine an Ethiopian without sense of justice, sense of uh, uh, hospitality, tolerance. So this is the characteristics of Ethiopia. So whoever preaches an idea different from that, really you can hardly call it Ethiopian because Ethiopia is, we have to remember all the time the Ethiopians are uh, an outcome of internal dynamics through process of 
reforms, conflicts, migrations, external threats, and no single ethnic group dominated in state formation or administration. Ethiopia is multi-ethnic. Uh, Ethiopia itself is a multi-ethnic enterprise. I showed you how different uh, rulers, different parts of Ethiopia uh, created this. So they fought invaders under the banner of Ethiopianism. Never they fought under any ethnic appellation. So Ethiopia by definition means really a country uh, of inspiration, a country of uh, what do you call anybody belongs to be to gain freedom. So this is what the spirit, uh, what the students of today have to develop. Be aware of their rich uh, historical identity and the uh, historical role they played. And of course, there are a lot of things to be said. We shouldn't uh, give very easily, swayed away very easily by the by what we have been told at the school by these uh, Western media, Western intellectuals. At the end of the day, you shouldn't forget that they are uh, teaching us uh, their own culture are superior, but Ethiopians by definition may are people of with very high sense of equality, okay? And this has been the characteristic of Ethiopian society. And whenever uh, you can see that they fought colonialism, the defeat, the victory of Adwa is really what it means is that every human being, no matter how technologically superior of advance he, he is, is equal, no matter what. So that is what we have to remember all the time. So we have to be we have to be proud of our history and learn our history. That is what I, I will say, because uh, this is, uh, uh, I have a statement here, what says is, um, uh, what is it? A nation that ignores its history is doomed to perish. An individual with no knowledge of history, of his own history is as someone who lost his consciousness. That is what we lost. So that is what we have to recover. True. Very true. Um, wow, thank you so much. Um, I think, I hope for those who are listening, I hope they take your words to heart and I hope that they start to make, um, especially in about um, what you said about critical thinking. And um, I hope that's something that's, I think that's something that really that's something that this diaspora not just the diaspora but this generation and and um even the previous generation has really lacking and it's um ultimately i think it's had pretty drastic results and there's been a lot of um consequences of that um but thank you for that thank you you definitely answered my question um i'll leave it up to my colleagues if they had any other questions that they wanted to ask my questions are done but um if any of my other colleagues here had any questions, um, you guys can go on ahead. Yeah, so uh, I just wanted to ask a follow-up question about what you said uh, about the Sidama and how their name was given to them. And, uh, you know, I, I just want to ask, because I thought that uh, Ababari, the monk who recorded the Oromo migrations, 
uh, he was based in Sidama. And I thought that, you know, the name already existed since uh, he was reported to have been based there. Yeah, Abba Bahri actually was not located in Sidama. He was located in uh, what um, you call today, uh, what you call Gamugofa. Uh, imagining Gamugofa at that time, if uh, you know, Abba Bari is one of the greatest intellectuals. Actually, I think he's the only uh, what you call anthropologist in Ethiopia, is the old Ethiopian history. And so he registered, uh, recorded the anthropology, let me say, of the Oromo population migration. Actually, it is not migration, really, the Oromo population. Uh, ancestry and uh, uh, what I call it anthropology. Uh, but in his description, the Oromos call the Ethiopians uh, Sidama. Sidama means really whoever is not Oromo. Uh, he doesn't tell us what they call, uh, for example, the Somali or no, but Sidama is very general term for Ethiopians. Okay. Who are Christian. Oh, thank you for that. I, I didn't know that. That's very interesting to know. Thank you. Yeah. Anybody else have a question? Yeah, we'll, we'll, um, we're definitely, we'll go into the concept of um, ethnicity on a future episode for sure. Uh, the ethnic or identity and the origin of, of them and the, the nomenclature of how they came to be and how it became politicized. We'll definitely talk about that in, in a future episode. Um, our, our, not, our next episode will definitely uh, encompass a lot of the things that you said also in, in regards to Ethiopia's contributions to Pan-Africanism and, you know, um, Black excellence, you know, in, in general. So we'll definitely talk about that. And I think they're definitely worthy of, of being addressed. But other than that, um, unless any of my compatriots have anything um, add, anything else to add or to say, um, we we can go on from there. And um, um, do you guys have anything else to say? Um, any of my, uh, my peeps? No? Okay. Thank you so much for coming here, um, Dr. Laderville. I, I know it was not easy for you. You're a very busy man. You know, a lot of us are definitely busy, but um, thank you so much for being here. It was, it was very informative. I can, I can, I can speak for all of us here um, from Tariq. We can to say that we definitely learned a lot. Um, I definitely would say that I know, you know, a bit about Ethiopian history, but some of the things that you provided were brand new information for me. So um, I can't agree again to explain how grateful I am. Um, and how you took your time here to to come and to to visit us and to join us and to spread your knowledge uh, and information for us. And I think that's something that a lot of our viewers and our listeners here are definitely going to enjoy. So thank you so much again for 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 having um, for having for having us. Thank you, thank you very much. Uh, um, uh, I enjoyed myself. I hope uh, I have I ha I have been understood well. And it was great. I hope you'll continue with this and incorporate other Ethiopians and bring the youth to your camp and educate them. So practically, you become the Saint Paul of Ethiopia now. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Thank you very much. And, and you, you told me to speak uh, 
what you call in one language, which is different from Amharic? I don't know. Is it is that what you are intending to do? If you can give a little bit, you know, we, we often add a bit of a different language, an Ethiopian language at the end. So can you give us a little bit of uh, what you know about uh, from Kambatinya or Kambatisa, from what I understand? Uh, Kambatisa, Magana Sinone, Danam Tujate, can you give us a little bit of translation for us? So oh, I said, uh, thank you very much. You are doing great job and uh, be well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Ladderville. We really appreciate it. And we hope you, we hope to talk again. I definitely want to have, keep in contact with you. You're a very person. I, I definitely want to meet up. I definitely would love to have conversations with you about a lot of the things you said. Um, so thank you so much. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. And for sure. And we and this was this concludes our episode for today. Uh, we'll definitely come up and we'll have new topics and we'll start to interview more uh, esteemed um, and, and highly revered uh, individuals on our next future episodes. Uh, but thank you guys for attending. Please follow us on uh, on Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube and our, our, uh, all our uh, major um, platforms. Thank you so much. And we hope you have a good day.